Blog Talk Radio. Choices, decisions, frustrations and pain. Knowing I'm going to forget her someday. While I still can, I'll challenge all my loved ones, every friend, to look inside their hearts and understand that I. Welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm Lori LeBay, the host and founder of Alzheimer's Speaks, and I first want to wish everybody a happy holiday season. We decided to have the show even on Christmas Eve day because Alzheimer's doesn't get a vacation and neither does dementia. And we want to make sure that we're here for those who are still dealing and struggling um, with this disease during the holiday times. We know it can be very difficult time and we want to hopefully help you bring some joy back into some into the season. And so we've got a couple of great guests for you. Um, but before I go into that, since we always are getting new listeners, I just want to tell you a little bit about our platform here. Alzheimer's Speaks is an advocacy-based uh, company and we provide multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture around the world from crisis to comfort. At our core, we believe collaboratively We can win this battle against dementia, and I know we're making a difference thanks to all of you who are our supporters on the multiple platforms that we have because Dr. Oz in ShareCare just honored us with being the number one influencer on the Internet regarding Alzheimer's, and we couldn't have done that without you. So thank you for each time that you like us and tweet us. Uh, That really is helping spread the word and pulling people together around the world. Um, Again, we're not doing this alone. We're all in this together. Um, By joining forces and sharing our knowledge and having just these everyday conversations that we have here on Alzheimer's Speaks, we're removing the stigmas that are attached to memory loss, and we can really help people who are living in the trenches with this disease get back their lives. Get back that feeling of purpose, and together we can help everybody understand the true needs of this disease, not just the myths and the stigmas that seem to stagnate us. We want to raise awareness by giving voice to not only those afflicted with the disease, but their care partners, both family and professionals, as well as advocates supporting the cause. And, you know, we're really, we really feel strongly here that You know, we just can't be driven by fear anymore regarding this disease. It's time to give people hope. And that's what the show and the company is really all about. So if you haven't done so, check out our website. It's www.alzheimersspeaks.com, and that's two S's in the middle. Um, And we would love to, um, you know, hear what you have to say. From there, you'll be able to access the radio show, the blog, the resource website, the YouTube channel, and free tools and more. 
Our channel expert on the show is Rick Phelps, who has early onset Alzheimer's disease. And to be honest, I'm not sure if Rick's going to make it today or not. If he pops in, I'll definitely pull him into the show. Rick is the founder of Memory People on Facebook, which is just a wonderful support group um, in virtual time. And if you have not checked out Memory People, I highly encourage you to do that. Just go to Facebook and or um, yeah, uh, Facebook, and in the search bar, uh, just type in Memory People and ask to join. We'd also like you to join the conversation today, and you can do that um, if you signed in um, on the Internet via Facebook. You can utilize the chat box, and you can um, type in your questions or your comments. I'll be screening those throughout the show. Or you can call in live and talk to us. And that number is 714-364-4757. Again, that's 714-364-4757. So let me pull in our first guest. I want to introduce her, though, first. Her name is Phyllis Palm, and Phyllis... uh, is a licensed psychologist in New York uh, who actually closed her practice in 2010 to move to Mesa, Arizona, so that she could care for her husband of 22 years who has Alzheimer's disease. Why Arizona? Because um, she and her husband spent many happy times there, and their three children and two grandchildren would be close uh, to be able to help and support her. Um, She now is a volunteer support leader for the Alzheimer's Association and speaks to support uh, caregivers, both family and professionals. She's the author of the memoir about her transformation as a result of being a caregiver for her husband. And the book is titled, Put That Knife Away. How are you doing today, Phyllis? Very well, thank you. Thank you very much, Lori. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I really appreciate you taking taking time. I know it's tough, you know, during the holiday season and to, to steal an hour from you. I, I very much appreciate it, and I know that our listeners will as well. Um, to start out with, can you tell us why um, why you decided to write the book, Put That Knife Away? I started journaling. As a psychologist, we know that, when we have feelings about something, especially negative feelings, it's very good to write them down. And then you can look and see what's going on with yourself and maybe turn those negative thoughts into positive thoughts. In addition, my lawyer had told me to write down the financial expenses that I was having caring for my spouse. And so putting those two things together, I came up with journal entries, and then I took a course in writing memoir. And writing memoir, of course, I had to produce five pages every week for people to read and critique. And by the end of the summer, I had the kernel for a book. And so I decided to add to it by attending support groups and meeting other people who had similar issues with their loved ones so that the book would be a compendium not only of my experience but of other people also who had similar or different trails to to cross in order to manage uh, their loved one. My particular husband's disease progressed in a way that was so different from my mom. My mom also 
suffered from Alzheimer's disease, and she passed away in 2000. And she was a sweet, lovely lady who we enjoyed her company all the way to the end. And every time we went to visit her, she would say, can I get you anything? And if there was a piano available, she would play the piano for us. And my husband, unfortunately, um, had personality changes, and I needed to share that information with other caregivers because I didn't know what to expect. And by writing the book, I thought perhaps that I could be a support for other people going through the same thing. And that is, I think, really helpful for many because we all kind of go, what the heck, <laughs> you know, what's going on here, and, and how do I address this, and is this normal? Um, and we'll dive into that a little bit more during our our conversation, but can you tell us why you decided to title it, Put That Knife Away? That was the turning point, unfortunately, in my ability to care for my husband at home. I was preparing a Friday night dinner, and I thought that he was napping. But just as when when children are too quiet, you really want to go and check and see what's going on, I perhaps should have done the same thing because in in my reverie as I'm sitting there carving the chicken, I hear my husband telling me, put that knife away, you're scaring me. And I turned around to reassure him that he was behind me, and then before I could say anything, he said, because I have one too. And he pulled out a long bread knife and brandished it in front of me, being defensive as if he were going to hurt me because because I was frightening him, because there was something that was going on that he didn't understand. And wow. although I became really calm and I said, okay, hon, I'll put my knife down if you put your knife down, as you would with a child. Mm-hmm. He answered me like an eight- or nine-year-old would. I don't have to listen to you. You're not my mother. And I was kind of frightened. I was very, very frightened. When I told my children this story, my son came and, and changed the locks on my bedroom door <laughs> to ones that you needed a, a key to open instead of the one that you just pushed shut. Mm-hmm. And he... You know, everybody was very frightened that what if my husband woke up in the middle of the night and had some kind of hallucination or some kind of paranoid delusion that I was his enemy and that he had to protect himself by hurting me. Yeah, that would be that would be awfully scary. And that scenario is not unusual. I, I don't think people talk about it openly. Sometimes the fears, and, you know, we never had that with my mom. My mom was... You know, her her personality changes were a little bit of paranoia. She didn't know who was in her kitchen, and so she didn't like that, but um, never physically threatening or, or overly verbally abusive. And, and so we were very, very lucky, and then that stage, you know, left, uh, kind of left the building. But it is not uncommon at all uh, for people to go through this. And I think it's extremely important to have an outlet and to know um, who to talk to and where to go so that you have that understanding ear um, and to be able to get the support, um, not only just medically, um, but, you know, just on a family and friend basis as well for people to understand that. Why don't we dive into, you had mentioned um, 
you know, one of the reasons you had written the book was your attorney had asked you to kind of write down things financially and stuff. And can you, you know, give us some examples of what, you know, maybe what some of the changes you were seeing in your in your life from a financial angle or things that you now had to be more conscious of that maybe you weren't prior to? Well, my husband did become paranoid even way earlier than he became aggressive and violent, and he was accusing me of spending all his money. Now, we are a second marriage, and um, my lawyer was concerned that his children would believe him and think that I was spending his money. So she said I really should check what kinds of expenses I had. I tried hiring helpers to be with my husband so that I can continue to go to my office and see my patients. And that was the the first kind of expense that I noticed. The other expense that was really large is that the first time in 2006, way long ago, that we went to a neurologist, the neurologist accused me of selling our big house, um, which took away something from my husband that he was still able to do, puttering in the garden and working in the garage and working in the cellar, which he didn't have in our small apartment in New York. And so I turned around and I bought a bigger apartment. And mm-hmm. <laughs> I need, he needed a hobby room, the doctor said. And you know what? Even though it was an expense that I had to to write down to make sure that that was justifiable, you know, because it was Mm -hmm. my decision, not his. But it kept him really engaged and active for two years. He changed, he put quarter-round molding around the floors in the 1,100-square-foot apartment. He said he walked to the lumber yard, and he bought himself a miter box, and he cut all the angles, and he placed all that molding, and then he painted it before he put it on and nailed all the molding on. So that really kept him busy for a long time. And then he took all the doorknobs off the 11 closet and, and room doors that we had, and he took all those those brass plates and he mm-hmm. shined them all up because this, this building was built in 1922 and mm-hmm. had all those glass doorknobs, and he really loved uh, puttering and loved fixing it up. And, of course, he had his sewing machine back. And my husband, who was a chemist professionally, loved to tinker. He loved to sew. He loved to cook. He loved to collect recipes. He had a 1,000 cookbooks. And most of them at that point were in storage. And so Mm -hmm. we had to take them out. And we got him a storage room three blocks away from our house. And I made a kind of deal with one of the gentlemen who worked at that storage facility to sort of look out for my husband and take him up on the elevator. You know, they have those big freight elevators, and I was kind of scared to have him go up there alone. And Francis took him up there, and Francis brought him back down, and Bob went through each box of books with new boxes, masking tape, and marking pen, and he sorted out all his cookbooks, which he wanted to keep and which he was willing to donate. And we donated 600 books um, to the Housing Works Thrift Shop, which is a thrift shop that supports housing for people with AIDS and HIV. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, see, he was kept very, very busy, and it really, um, it really extended his healthy life. Oh, that's really nice. 
That was wonderful. That's, that's a great, great thing. Um, can you tell us, you know, you, you kind of talked a little bit about um, the personality changes, you know, with mm-hmm. your husband. And right. it sounds like you did a nice job of keeping him engaged as long as you could, um, doing different things. Can you give us some other examples at all of of some things you did to um, to help him feel calm and feel engaged? Well, I didn't act in advance. I was always reacting to something uncomfortable that had transpired. And that's, I think, what most of us do. We can't plan in advance how to help our loved ones through a challenging situation. Unfortunately, we have to go through that challenging situation first. For example, I had a niece and a nephew, one and three years old, come to visit with their parents from California. And my husband, Bob, has a collection, and he has it with him right now, of toy cars. And they're not all corgis. They're not all uh, matchbox you know, in perfect condition in their boxes. Mm-hmm. There are many of them that are used little cars and trucks like the matchbox cars. And I gave them to the three-year-old to play with. And he had lined them up under the buffet in the living room, um, all in a row as if they were one big traffic jam. After all, he does live in California. <laughs> <laughs> and Bob walked in and said, Do you know those are mine? <laughs> And I said, yes, and isn't that nice that we're letting Elijah play with them? Look how nicely he has them lined up. And he says, those are my cars. And so the little boy said, I think I'd like to pick them back up now, (laughs) and handed the bag over to Bob. So there's no way that I could have predicted Mm -hmm. that that would happen. So some of the things, there is no way to prevent a hurt feeling in somebody that you love. All right, And then in other ways, you can try to make his life comfortable. And so we tried to keep normal. We tried to go on walks. He loved to watch the, um, well, in New York, they're Con Ed. What, I don't know where else, the, the utility company, when they dig holes and they <laughs> they fix the pipes, and the gas pipes or the electric wires. He loved watching construction workers. And so we would go for walks, and he also loved thrift stores. And then, of course, he got to the point where he was kind of indiscriminate in what he wanted to purchase. And that was difficult. And what I would do and what I still do now when my son and I take him to a Walmart or a Home Depot, he falls in love with a set of chisels or he falls in love with a set of of ratchets or whatever those things are called, which I don't even know. And so he puts them in the cart, and then we travel to another aisle, and then Stephen or I kind of sort of remove them from the cart, and he doesn't remember that he had put them there. One Uh time I was there a few weeks ago, and he found a a hammer that he really wanted. Now, in his memory care unit, there is no way he can bring home a hammer. (laughs) So we got all the way, because he and I were there together alone, no one else was with us, and I put all of the things that we had purchased. I had bought him new underwear and socks and and nice fuzzy slippers. And then I asked the the girl behind the counter, I said, please don't sell us that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And she said, oh, okay, and she hid the hammer. (laughs) (laughs) So, which goes to saying that, that there's something called therapeutic lying, 
Mm-hmm. But sometimes in order to help a loved one feel comfortable, you sort of have to cloud the truth a little. Yeah. And, well, and you, know, you never know what they're going to hang on to, you know. Or what know. Are they going to remember that it's in the cart or not? Because sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. And well, then you just you have to kind of deal with it. <laughs> well, one day, one day we were at a, a big lot store, and he fell in love with something, and there was nobody there that I knew or nobody there that, that could understand what I was going to say, so I had to buy it. And when we got to the car, he said he's going to put it in the back seat. And I knew that once he did that, he would forget that it was there. And we mm-hmm. went out to dinner, and he did forget that it was there, and then I had to go back the next day and return it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a little bit more trouble for me, but it makes him feel good for the moment. And that's the point that I like I like to 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 tell people that we can still have happy moments with our loved ones who have Alzheimer's disease. You know, taking oh, yeah, him lots of them. Ah, uh, taking my husband to the the tool aisle in an Ace Hardware store. He stood there and he said diamonds. And you know, he's not very articulate these days, and so mm-hmm. I I didn't know what he meant. And so I said diamonds. And he said just like a woman in a jewelry store, I love it here. Oh. <laughs> now, maybe he doesn't remember that, but I do. Yeah. So that I'm making memories for myself. I'm continuing to have pleasant moments, joyful moments, times that we share, especially with my son Steve around because my son Steve is so good with him. He hands him the tools, and Bob says, oh, this is very heavy. It must weigh 50 pounds. And then Steve will hand him a teeny tiny little tool. He said, you can't do anything with that. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it keeps him keeps my husband interested and it keeps us knowing that we can still do something positive for him and for ourselves and that's that's nice it's it's nice just to have i I don't think people realize how crazy and psychotic our world has gotten and how we've let our lives just kind of spin out of control and with somebody with with dementia once you grasp the fact that you need to live in the moment and really keep the peace and, and focus on the contentment. You know, it doesn't have to be big whoop-de-doo stuff. Um, there's just this calmness and this, I think, gratitude that comes over you. Um, anyways, I, I know it did for me, and I know so many others have said the same thing. And it's like, why don't we teach this to our kids? You know, when when they're small, so they don't have to struggle when they're adults. You know, uh, in these instances when when change comes about, because it's it's so it's just such a blessing and on so many levels um, to be able to appreciate the little things and to to just have those little phrases or those moments that that aren't anything spectacular. Nobody won the lottery. It's not like that. It's so much deeper. It just penetrates your soul. And um, it, they're beautiful, beautiful moments if we can get people to to let go of some of the control um, issues and and just be okay. With I had a beautiful on. moment like that on Veterans Day. 
my husband is a veteran, and they had a very nice ceremony at the home where he is living now, but they had that the Friday before the public celebration. But on the Monday that we celebrated Veterans Day, there was a parade downtown, and my grandson, who was a wee-below scout, was marching in the parade. And after the parade, I took him to visit Grandpa, and we all, the three of us, went to dinner. And my grandson was so kind, and he helped Grandpa Bob get into his into the car and closed the car seat the, the the seat belt for him and held his hand walking to the store to the restaurant and played a little game with a with with the little jelly packets while we were waiting for our food and mm-hmm. really entertained him. And when I said to Grant later on, I said that was so kind of you. He said, "I'm a scout. That's what scouts do." Oh, <laughs> and oh. it was so sweet. It was so sweet. So I am teaching Grant that kind of appreciating the small things that you were talking about. And, you know, we can do that every day. We can, Every time we get an opportunity, I think it's a wonderful way to to help change the, the, the flow and, and to slow it down a little bit. I think you're absolutely right. And don't you think, you know, so many times I think families try to protect the children, and the children come with, you know, so graceful, especially the small ones who haven't learned to judge yet and are really accepting of just, you know, I'm supposed to be a good person, and they believe that at their core, and they lead by example with those things. And sometimes I think they just, they're just incredible creatures um, here to teach us you know, as adults, how to be a child again and how to let go and how to appreciate just the small, fine little points of life that really, because kids, I mean, they just swallow up joy and happiness. I mean, that's their whole goal. They bounce out of bed going, you know, I want to be happy, you know, and I'm going to look for it. And that's what they do. And as adults, we go, I want to be happy, but I have to do this and that and blah, 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 blah. And then our whole focus really has nothing to do with happiness. It has to do with all these tasks that we have wow. to do. But it... oh, you're absolutely you're absolutely right. But I can just hear some of your listeners listening and saying, "Oh yeah, but I don't want to expose my grandson to the cursing that's going on in my house that never went on here before." Here we have a grandpa who was always telling everybody else, don't use bad language, who is now using the worst language imaginable. And I really don't want to expose the young children to this misbehavior. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I can understand that too. And that's why it's so important now that that stage is passed for me to be able to reintroduce this young man who's now nine um, to the grandpa who, when he was four and five, was this, you know, and before that was the most loving, wonderful grandpa. When he was kind of six and seven, um, said things like, when that child comes to visit, they should tie him to a chair. Because <laughs> 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 he couldn't tolerate the little boy running around in, in the house. So I can understand both parts of that, and that mm-hmm. this disease travels through many different stages. And it's just so hard to to make one kind of a behavior that we want caregivers to follow. They have to follow their hearts, and they have to protect. They really do. You know, because when my husband 
he had really bad behavior. He had bad sexual behavior. I had a mm-hmm. cleaning woman come and help me clean my house. And one day when I was paying her as she was leaving, my husband said, you better watch out. And we both looked at him like, what for? And he said, you and my wife are the same size, and one day I might come after you instead of her. <laughs> and so the- <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that was the last I saw of that cleaning person. She called me up and she said, "I don't think I'd be comfortable in your house while you go to your office." <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you bring up a really good point that there isn't a one size fits all with this, and that this right. disease does ebb and flow, and people do have to be conscious of that, and um, I definitely, definitely have to watch, uh, you know watch people's comfort levels and and so forth um and the whole ethics of being raised my mom went through that oh you know i mean she used to literally when we were younger she would carry a bar of soap in her purse for there was a one period of uh-huh. time where she was just livid and you know if if any of us swore i mean we were getting that bar of soap you know stuffed in our mouth you know when she was going to clean that mouth out and right. and then all of a sudden she's swearing like a like a truck driver, you know. Right. And she was just like, "Where did this come from?" But you know, they lose the filters, um, right. and certain things come out. And and you, every every person, you know, goes through these stages at different times, and not all of them will go through all of them. Um, and it might be there and leave and come back, and yeah. So you you have to you have to really go with the flow. I think that was very. Very valid point with that. Um, so it's again, so stressful. I, it's so stressful mm-hmm. for us who are caregivers to have to be aware of all of these different people in our lives and all of these different events happening. And where do we go for support for ourselves? Where do we go to have some joy in our own lives? Where do we go to escape for a little while from the tedium especially during this holiday time when we want everything to be perfect, we want everything to be nice, and it isn't always. Yeah, and that's a that's a good point. Why don't we talk a little bit about, because we're in the holiday season, uh-huh. um, I know that you've got a support group and we were talking earlier about, uh, you know, some of the things that people were coming in kind of feeling stressed out and overloaded, and, and how do you... How do you bring that sanity and that calmness back? Do you have some guidance for some people um, during the holiday season of how to how to just feel full and feel you know, you know get to that place of joy? I used your statement from Alzheimer Speaks, turning caregiving from crisis to comfort, and I asked them to think about how they could have this next week that would be more comfortable. And what would change that for them? And the people in my group were saying, well, maybe she doesn't have to change her clothing so often. Or maybe we can go without that shower. Or maybe I can, you know, take the toast out of the toaster for her and not kind of wait for her to figure out where it came from or where it's going. In order for life to be a little bit smoother and then someone else piped in and said you know what sometimes they can do a lot more than we think they can 
but they're just sort of waiting on us to wait on them hand and foot, and I don't think that that's necessarily good for them or for me. So the balance there is, again, one that, that's very difficult, that we need to, to do something to make life a little bit more comfortable and suspend our judgment and not yeah, that's a be... That's a huge one, to be yeah. able to suspend our judgment against them or against a family member who doesn't understand or mostly to stop being so hard on ourselves. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. that that's the that's the biggest part that we want everything to be perfect that we want everybody to feel good we want everybody to have a good time we want everybody to get along you know I I was at the nursing home yesterday well I'm sorry we're not supposed to call it that at the care facility yesterday <laughs> <laughs> and well, you know what's funny is I want to make a comment on that go ahead. a lot of, a lot of the communities have verbiage that they want us to use but yeah. You know, we still use it. That's that's what we've known it as, and you know, we don't. It, it isn't any different to us. Um, but I think for the communities, um, it, it they think it's a, a big, big difference in in perception. But when you're in the thick of it, um, you know, we fall back. <laughs> you know? I know. I'm I'm sorry I did that, but I do fall back on in using that terminology. Even though I think the large nursing homes had a bad reputation. Mm-hmm. And these smaller places that we have now, they are so caring and the people are so kind and they really they do such a wonderful job dealing with all kinds of crises all day long. And I I really uh appreciate the work that they do and all of the professional caregivers you really have to have a really strong character to be able to work in in these places yeah i i agree they've come a long long ways um but like i you know one of the things that makes me feel bad is is you apologized for using that word Right. And and I think sometimes we feel scolded, and I think caregivers don't need to feel that scolding. That's sometimes. right. <laughs> You're know, right. We, we, we beat ourselves up enough. And like I always say with dementia, when people feel bad that a loved one doesn't remember them, we are more than a name. We are more than a name. And a care facility is way more than a name. Any type, you know. We have to we have to look at big picture and you know how is it being used you know how is it being stated <laughs> right. and referenced and you know when you when you made when, when you used the word nursing home I mean you you weren't being upset you weren't attacking you know it was just you know it was just a, a place. That he lived. It was a reference to start a story. <laughs> yep, and, and, that's, and then I and got that's caught a, in the language. Yeah, and that's that's okay. And that, I don't want to get us too sidetracked on that, but I just think um, the power of the definition sometimes take over. And I don't think, and I understand it's a it's a good thing in terms of trying to change culture. But I think right. there's a point where sometimes it goes too far. And um, we get paranoid, and that's not that, that isn't anything anyone needs to add into the into the mix. In my personal opinion, I um, agree with you, Lori, so much. Especially we were going through in, in the city. Um, should the manhole cover be called a person hole cover? <laughs> <laughs> 
depends on which side of the cover I'm going to be on, I guess. <laughs> yeah, things can go a little bit too far. Yeah, absolutely correct. Yeah. Yeah. But the story I was going to tell you is that when I went there, a family was visiting a loved one, and this family, the grandson and the parents, had moved to Utah from Arizona. And when the grandpa saw them, he began to cry. And this, this he must be a 13-year-old boy. He was so upset that, that Grandpa wasn't happy to see him. And um, I went over to him, put my arm on his shoulder, and I said, you know what, Grandpa's crying tears of joy. He's not crying tears of sadness. He's so happy to see you. And it was really remarkable that he hadn't seen this boy in two years, and he knew exactly who he was. I don't oh. know if he could call him by name, but he mm-hmm. knew who he was, and, and he knew that he had missed him, and he was so overjoyed to see this young man. Oh, that that's nice that you reframed that for him, because right. as kids, we don't always see that. Right. Sometimes as adults, we don't always see that either. And so it's very, very important stuff. Um, right. Now, you also have some really strong um, feelings about, you know, roles that that adult children should play um, in terms of of caring for a parent. And can you kind of explain some of your thoughts regarding that as well? Especially, again, that this is holiday season, why it's a really good time for us to be speaking together today, that, and especially now that I live in Arizona, I see that many grandparents and parents of adult children live in a different state from their younger relatives. And these younger relatives come and visit over the holidays. And I think that I want people to look carefully at their parents, at their lives, and see if one of the parents is protecting the other one and is really being a caregiver and not letting people know because I've seen that that happens, and I see that that is very detrimental to the person who's doing the caring because they are kind of stuck with their care partner, and they don't go to their own doctor's appointments, and they don't eat well because the loved one goes back to wanting macaroni and cheese for dinner, and that's not necessarily what the, what the care partner really needs to sustain him or herself, or if it's a man taking care of a woman and he's never cooked before, I find that they're eating a lot of Subway sandwiches. Not, I mean, that's the best of them, but that's not, not exactly the diet that we really want people to be having to prepare themselves for their own aging process. And the visitors have to be able to look at that and have some kind of serious conversations with their loved ones. So that's one part of it. Another part of it is that I would like the younger people to be asking their parents um, and even other relatives if they've had their legal paperwork in order, if they have powers of attorney, if they have medical care proxies, if they have wills or trusts or some way that they have protected themselves. Because even some people who are in my support group says, you know, I really have to do that, but I haven't done it yet. And I know one family in particular where her house was foreclosed on her after her husband went into the care facility because her name was not on the mortgage. 
and he was no longer capable of signing it and changing it. Mm. And that's yeah. really scary. And it could yeah, have been yeah. done so easily because a lot, you know, maybe it doesn't happen with people who are in their 50s anymore because a lot of the women have been working and have their own income. But with people who are in their 70s and 80s, many of the women have had housewife professions all their lives, and all of the assets are in the husband's name. Well, but it's sometimes, a, too, I think it can happen when there is a second marriage and if somebody moves into somebody else's house. Exactly. You're keeping things separate, and it's you know you just you don't really know what the title is. People don't think about maybe we should revisit how is this title um, taken because maybe it does all go to the kids and not to the spouse. And a lot of times exactly. people think, well, assets are just split. Well, it depends on when they were purchased and how, and, and from state to state. And you know, I'm not an attorney, but. I was in real estate for a long time, and and that is very, very important um, for people to assess. Um, Some people will get um, insurance policies on one another, so um, they could buy out the other side if they're trying to keep assets separate. So they could buy, you know, the kids could get the Uh cash done. And, you know, so there's lots of different ways. So speaking with, you know, an elder law attorney um, is not a bad idea because they're going to have a good idea of, just what you're going to be up against in terms of <clears throat> expenses and and so forth, and then um, you know just looking at looking at the finances as a total piece, um, including properties. Very very wise things having those wills in order, and um, you know a lot of times it's nice if the kids kind of they don't have to know everything, but if they know that things are covered, powers of attorney, healthcare directives. Um, you know, because there becomes a point when it is too late um, right. to be able to change it from a competency level. And, right. Um, I do know the, that you have to be careful that in case there is an incompetent younger person, you don't want to um, have your money stolen by someone who is going to take advantage of you. Oh. So I can understand the hesitation mm-hmm. on some people's part not to reveal everything. Yep. All right. Yeah, when I or, went with my oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, when I, I actually went with my folks when they were going to do all of their stuff because I <clears throat> had referred them to an attorney, and she said, "Okay, now, Laura, you need to leave." And my parents said, "No, no, she can stay." And and Chris said, "No, she needs to leave." <laughs> and Good. my parents said, "No, no, we really want her to stay." And Chris said, "You don't understand. We're going to talk turkey about each of your kids." Um, how financially responsible are they? Do they drink? Do they do drugs? Do you think there's going to be a divorce? Do they pay their taxes? Um, we're going to talk big time because this is important stuff. If you're picking someone to be in charge or have powers of attorney, we need to know exactly where they stand. And um, I was able to um, sit in on that conversation because my folks wanted me um, in there, and it was really very interesting. Um, and very smart because we don't have those conversations and look at things honestly sometimes. Um, we look at, I think especially when it comes to children, we want to a lot of times think the best. They wouldn't do that. <laughs> right. You know? and, and the attorney will say, oh, 
yours might not, but it does happen. And so we need to, you know, we need to be cautious. So you need to have somebody kind of outside who is protecting your interest and can look at things from all all different angles. That very, was the very most important point, that in some cases we want the parents and the children to have these conversations, but in some cases the parents might want to have an outside person responsible. Yep, yep. Oh, yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. Um, no. Again, sometimes the egos come into play and people get offended, but you need to do what you feel is best um, to do. And... Um, and even when it comes to willing stuff away, sometimes people go, well, we'll just, you know, we'll have them all split it. And sometimes that's not the best way for the family to stay intact. <laughs> you know? Exactly, exactly, because that puts the pressure on on the next generation to decide where what goes. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's all about smart living. And, uh, you know, I think those are great conversations and, and like we had talked uh, a little bit earlier, too, you know, with the holidays, it's good to be looking to see if you're visiting loved ones, how are they doing? How are conversations flowing? How are tasks being done? Is, is uh, you know, if you're with a couple, um, you know, is one picking up more, uh, you know, a, a larger load than normal um, from past? And being able to have those conversations. And, and many people, you know, I always say, um, try to hide that. The person who's having a problem doesn't want to admit it because they don't want to lose anymore, and they, you know they they want to have their dignity and you know feel engaged, which we all do. And when it comes to adult kids, a lot of times, or even spouses, um, they might see things changing, but don't want to address it because they don't want to get in a fight. You know, if there's resistance, or oh my gosh, if they agree, now I have more stuff to do. And so right. they're so that's a burden. Yeah. <laughs> right. So My husband was that. so good at being social for such mm-hmm. a long time that mm-hmm. even after an outburst in the attorney's office one day, we went out to lunch with the attorney in a, a restaurant near her office, and anyone in the restaurant would have thought that we were three perfectly normal, healthy people. He pulled it back together. He ordered from the menu. He ate appropriately. He had conversation and everything looked as if it were absolutely normal mm-hmm. so yeah. it's sometimes very hard you have to really really pay attention to see what's going on in a family yeah the uh the social skills are amazing um the, the variables i know with my mom the same thing i mean she could just mix and most people didn't have a clue um, how, mu- how much difficulty she was having in so many other areas because she was being helped getting dressed so she looked good, you know, and she could ha- carry on a conversation. She was always a yapper, you know, and she she loved people, and so that was not a skill that left her. And so a lot could be hidden exactly. you know, with, those, with those social skills, so we really have to look a little a little deeper um, with people with my mom, I had to go looking in her refrigerator because I found she was still driving. She was still teaching nursery school every morning at age 80, and everybody thought that she was fine until I went into the refrigerator and I saw two-liter bottles of soda, and my mom 
was living alone in an apartment, and she didn't drink soda and certainly wouldn't buy two-liter bottles. She wasn't expecting anybody to come for a party. And she bought other things that she never would eat. And when I questioned her about it, she said, I had a coupon. Now, my mom always shopped with coupons, but she became Uh indiscriminate. She would shop with coupons because she would match what was on the coupon, which was on the shelf, and that's what she would buy because she no longer knew what to purchase for herself to eat. Sure. So she was was fine. Right? She was fine because she and her friends would go out to dinner one night and then save half of the food and eat it the next day for leftovers and then go out Mm -hmm. to dinner again. So most of the time she was okay and could pass. She could cover, again, not only socially, but taking care of herself, but really she wasn't taking good care of herself. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's amazing all the little twists and turns. Um, that you learn as this disease um, comes into play. And shopping and, and finances can be very difficult for some. I had one friend whose um, dad was a, a business owner, very, very savvy, and he was trading stocks and doing all kinds of stuff. And you know, and then they, they got that settled down and, and got control of that. Well, then he started watching QVC and ordering stuff on the TV and, and then right. pretty soon he was ordering cabs, taking them out, going places. And, and it was just, you know, and he, he wasn't of sound mind, and he was doing some things um, investment-wise that were not not wise at all um, for them. And so it was really hard for him to still feel purposeful, you know, for them to find something for him to be able to still be able to feel in control because managing money and funds and coordinating things was really his life and um so they had to keep changing it up all the time and, and figuring well, out what they were lucky that they didn't lose their life savings i know one woman whose husband um mismanaged three hundred thousand dollars and that was all of their retirement funds yeah gone gone yeah. and there was no way that that they could get them back, you know, that they could say, oh, he wasn't in his right mind, he wasn't competent, blah, blah. That money was gone. Yeah, and that happens way more than people think. Yeah, you know, these phone scammers and things that are that are exactly. out there. They have That's a, true, a too. girlfriend right. whose who's mom, um, you know, they routinely call her and ask her to invest in something, and she thinks it's going to be a good deal, and, and it's just, it's it's very um, sad and very frustrating, and um, they're just relentless. And she'll get it, you know, Amy will get it all taken care of and changed, and then all of a sudden, poof, they pop back up again. And um, it's just very sad, sad, sad stuff. But um happens way more than we think it does. And so we've just, you know, one of those things, you got to just be, you got to watch out. Um because uh, you just don't know what's what's always going on, you know, with things. So, so on the other well, side I, of that story, my mm-hmm. son went to visit my husband one day, and, well, I was out of town, and he said, I would like you to buy my wife a present. I would like you to go to the jewelry store with me because I think she needs some gold. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that was and the I night guess, he was thinking of you. 
it was very nice. But he thought that if I, if he purchased something for me, maybe I would be there and and I wouldn't be away. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know what the thought was, but you have to be careful about what you know about what kind of control people have with their finances if they are not competent. So the question is, how do you get that control? And unless you go to see an elder care lawyer, you really don't know. It's different for each person. Uh, so it's really very important for any of your callers, any of your listeners, to take that advice at holiday time. And what do you do? Um, with making these decisions is is very important because we want to be able to sleep at night when we can. We have a loved one keeping us up, keeping us up half the night. We want to at least be able to sleep the other half, exactly. and, um, and have so, some, some peace of mind. Um, I I wanted you to explain um, another story. I'm going to switch gears here a little bit, but okay. in your book you have a chapter on shopping for purses in Chinatown. And uh-huh. can you tell us why the heck that story is important? <laughs> <laughs> it is one of the most important chapters because it shows that the two of us, who are both caregivers, were able to take a morning off and able to do something fun just by ourselves without a care in the world, and that it's so important to get respite care like that, to have somebody there who can be with our spouses or whoever it is that we're caring for and have an adventure. And we had an adventure, just a subway ride downtown. We went from the Upper West Side down to Chinatown, and we were – buying um, name-brand knockoffs purses that were, I guess people don't pay tax on them, and that's why they're illegal to sell them. So we felt furtive, and we felt sneaky, and we felt uncomfortable. And all of those feelings totally took us far away from wondering about our, our loved one's moods or what they were you know, putting us through at home. And we had a, a lovely lunch out, and we really felt as if we had been on a vacation. Uh, and that's so important. And it's how important do we get, get respite soul. care? How do we get someone? There are organizations where they have wonderful, caring people who volunteer to stay with a loved one. And yet I have had a lot of pushback of people who really feel frightened to using them they are frightened to have a stranger in their house. And I can understand that, too. So that there yeah. are other ways. There are there are care facilities that provide respite. There's a new one. I, mean, I think when they're brand new, it's even easier because all their beds aren't filled. And they mm-hmm. will take somebody even in by the hour. They will charge $10 an hour. And you can drop your loved one off and come back and pick them up three, four hours later, and you can go with your friend and not be concerned about a stranger being in your home. So Mm -hmm. those are two kinds of ways. And there are day centers, and I know my husband hated to go to the day center. He really didn't like being with all those old people. Mm Mm-hmm. Because his perception was he wasn't one of them. (laughs) Exactly. Well, my husband's hair is still not gray. He's 83 years old, and he still Uh has a full head of hair. Well, it's getting gray now, but on the top it isn't. Just along the sides makes him look distinguished. He used to have Uh a white little goatee and a white little mustache, but 
if we've shaved that off, it's too much trouble to keep up, and he doesn't even remember. But anyway, he looks at all these other guys, and he says, they're all bald, and they're all gray. (laughs) (laughs) He looks disdainfully at them. (laughs) And he did, you know, three, four years ago when I tried putting him in a day center, even for a couple of days a week or even for just a half a day so that I could catch a break, um, they said I had to do it anyway, even though he didn't like it. That he would get used to it, and he would he would make friends at, at least with the staff. What he did is he made friends with the staff. And when my husband did become violent, it was the director of that care center who called me up, and he said, "Phyllis, there's something I'd like you to think about." And he said, "I said what?" He said, "There is a a senior." care psychiatric facility that has 30 beds and that I think your husband needs to go there for an evaluation for 10 to 14 days and maybe they could put him on some medication that would reduce his agitation and his aggression and make it easier for him to tolerate being at the day center and for you to tolerate having him at home. And if he Mm -hmm. hadn't gone to that facility, I wouldn't have known about that. Mm Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's it's People important really do share resources. Right, it's important to to access help so that you can share resources. It's important to call the Alzheimer's Association, call the helpline, go to your area agency on aging. Every region has one and get the possibility of help, make a relationship with somebody that you can trust so that if if a social worker comes to your home and says that they will send somebody there to sit with your spouse or your mom so that you can go to the movies. You know, it took Mm -hmm. me a really long time. I wanted to to share that with, with, with people who are listening, that when I did hire help against my husband's wishes because he thought I was spending all his money, if you remember, Mm-hmm. I would hire help so I could go to my office, so I could go to work, so I could go to a doctor's appointment, so that I could do something that was, quote, important. I would never hire help so I could go to a movie or so that I could go with a friend to hear a concert. All right, I deprived myself that that wasn't important enough. And I was wrong, all right, because yeah. I kept on getting more resentful and angrier and less able to cope during the time before I realized that. It was yeah, very but, hard. That's a very good point. Um, we, I, I think as, as caregivers or care partners, we get so task-oriented um, about all the things to do for them, we forget right. about we need to get refilled, and it's okay. And we need to laugh, and we need to just, not think about things for a little while, um, just so that we can re-energize. And when we're re-energized, we can care much better for for those you know that we love or that we work with. It's I mean exactly. it's, just, it's that yin and that yang thing, and we we forget about it. We get we let ourselves get overwhelmed, and we start living as the disease instead of living you know, with the disease. Oh, that is such an important distinction. Living as the disease instead of with the disease. I narrowed my life to the same degree that my husband's life was being narrowed by Alzheimer's. 
mm-hmm. until I realized that that's what was happening and that's what was making me angry. I wasn't the one who had Alzheimer's. My life didn't have to be diminished to such an extent. No. No, but we think it does. And it, you For know, a long it time, doesn't. yeah. Yeah. And so it, it is... Um, you know, it is really important for both the person with the disease and those that are caring for them to learn to live with it, not as and it. And that's what changed. That's why the the title of my book has the word transformation in it. Because mm-hmm. that's when my transformation began. When I realized that I didn't have the disease and I didn't have to live. I didn't have to live as the disease. I could live with the disease and make plans for my husband's care, and spend the money that I needed to spend in order for myself to have a life. Mm-hmm. And because you you deserve that, just you know, just as much as he does. I mean, everybody's got to have that balance. Um, right. And is and that selfish? Is that selfish? Is that what I signed up for when I said for better or worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part? Mm-hmm. Does that well, mean? That, okay. Yeah, <laughs> that whole world word of selfish um, has its own contemplations um, for everybody. And, you know, it's not, you know, in this case, it's not selfish. It's about self-worth and maintaining that. Um, in order to be and, a good care. Correct. And as a psychologist, I tell my patients all the time, to be selfish is a good thing. To care about yourself is a very good thing. And selfish is only what other people say mm-hmm. when they don't like what you're doing. Yeah. And but it's not about them. You have to you have no. to like not worry so much about what everyone else thinks. And Phyllis, I'm going to have to wrap us up here because I have another guest, but our time has just flown by. You gave us great insights. I would highly recommend um, Phyllis Palm's book, Put That Knife Away, Alzheimer's, Marriage, and My Transformation from Wife to Caregiver. Excellent, excellent book, and um, keep up the great work. She is available to, uh, you know, do talks, um, works with support groups, and you're just doing some wonderful, wonderful, amazing work out there to help shift caregiving from crisis to comfort. So I really um, appreciate that very much. Can you tell people um, how they can reach you? And um, I know you've got a website, um, philispalm.com. www.palm.com. Oh, I'm sorry, Phyllis. Oh, wait, I always put the W in there, phylluswpalm.com. And you can reach me at drdoctor.dr.palm at cox.net. That is my email address. And uh, I, would, I would love to hear from people. They can buy my book on Amazon, or they can buy my book on my website, or they can go to their local bookstore and order Put That Knife Away. When you, you know, type it in on your computer, Put That Knife Away, up it comes. And uh, you can get it on Kindle um, or in book form. I like people to get it on book form, and then they can share it with other people, <laughs> which yeah, is a wonderful like thing. Me, they mark, mark it up and highlight and do different things, too, for different points. So, again, thank you so much, and have a wonderful holiday season. I truly appreciate the time that you spent with us today. 
Thank you. I really appreciate meeting you and learning about your organization. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye now. Bye bye. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go ahead and introduce our next guest, who is Mark Etheridge. Um, and Mark evokes um, the refined pop of artists such as Steely Dan. Uh, Michael McDonald, Boss Skaggs, Todd Rundgren. His music is absolutely gorgeous. And in 2011, he decided to to leave his full-time job to, to go into the music circle. And he has a new album, which is titled Changing Times, which features 12 original contemporary um, songs for adults on a range of life topics. And he is um, going to join us uh, <clears throat> today on the show. He's just uh, just a marvel, and I'm very, very excited to, to be with him. Um, on his uh, album, he was joined in the studio by some of the uh, Bay Area's finest uh, session players and guests, such as the Tower of Power sax man, Tom, I believe it's Pulitzer, and the weather girl, Chanel Moore, and two tons of fun, Jeannie Tracy, and changing uh, or change coming um, is available in both CD and MP3 from CD Baby, iTunes, and Amazon. So, Mark, how are you doing today? Thank you so much for joining us. Oops, let me see. We're having a problem with the mic here. Let's try it again. Okay, Mark, are you there? I'm here. Thank you for joining us on this uh, holiday season here. I can't believe it's Christmas Eve day already. Are I know. Time is, time is flying by. I think I am. <laughs> well, that's good. That's good because time's a ticking. There's not much time left if you're not. <laughs> that's right. Well, Thank I you want... for having me on your show, Lori. Well, I'm excited to have you. Um, I thought I'd have you give people a little bit of, of background about yourself and um kind of how and where you grew up and, and um, you know, how you've been touched by dementia. Sure. Um, so I grew up with my mom and dad in Sunnyvale, California, um, very suburban environment uh, and, you know, very safe neighborhood, kids playing on the street all the time, seemed like no worries at all. And uh, I was the last of four boys. Um, my poor mother <laughs> did not have any girls. Um, uh, my mom was a very organized person, and uh, I would say she really prided herself on that. And uh, my father was originally a Methodist minister. Um, he actually had several careers, but that was kind of his main one. And then he retired from ministry and went to work for Western Electric and was in management training and then retired uh from that, and uh, um, I grew up, you know, listening to a lot of different kinds of music. Um, my brothers would play the Beatles and uh, Bob Dylan, and uh, my mom would be playing classical and sometimes some folk music, but mostly uh, classical and choral uh, music. Um, so it was a very musical environment growing up, and um, uh, and it was really. I think a really great family experience. Um, I know that's not true for a lot of people, but for me, I, I feel fortunate that you know I grew up with a, a family that was uh, that stayed together, and uh, um, and so uh, it was it was a good uh, upbringing, I would say. Well, that's great. 
Um, can you tell us, you know, how long Alzheimer's has been kind of part of your life um, in your family and who was touched with it and when you noticed all those kind of fun things? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, um, I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself an Alzheimer's expert, certainly um, not in the way that uh, Dr. Phyllis uh, uh, Palm is, or you know, I don't have as much, as much experience as uh, as you do, and and with a lot of caretakers. But um, it was just something that came about, and I had to learn a bit more about it. And really, what happened was um, in 2010, my father went into the hospital for congestive heart failure, and uh, he would get stabilized and then be sent to a nursing facility to convalesce and. Uh, and then the expectation that he would be going uh, home. and But this was a cycle, so he would go between the hospital to the nursing facility, back and forth uh, numerous times. And on um, one of my visits with my mom during that time, um, I was in the living room in our house, uh, the house I grew up in, and uh, she was in her study, and she came in and stopped and asked when my father was coming home. And so at that time, the answer was next week, because that's what we were told. And um, then a few minutes later, she would come into the room with the same question. And that was really the first, the beginning uh, for me, uh, understanding that something was not quite right. And uh, and then I talked to my brothers and, um, uh, and my dad, and she was reluctant to get a checkup, but my dad was able to convince her to go to a memory clinic, and then shortly after, she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Yeah, that's a it's a tough process, and I, I think it's so common. It's either the you know the repeating phrases, or um, you know tasks not getting done. It seem to be the two big triggers, I think, for for most family members. And um, do you remember any of the feelings, like when she came back in and repeated the question again, what that was like for you as an individual? It was like for me, um, yeah, I guess I was, after maybe the third or fourth time, maybe getting a little frustrated, and but really trying to uh, not uh, make her frustrated. Um and so I, I wanted to know more about what was going on. And um, there were other kind of behaviors that I noticed uh, that I still see where, you know, we'll be at lunch somewhere and she's got her bag um, and she's looking, uh, you know, maybe for some pills to make sure that she took her pills. can't remember if she did or not or if she even brought them, you know, things like that. Um, there's... Um, I've noticed also that she has um, a tendency to want to go to the same restaurant every time mm-hmm. um, because it's comfortable and it's what she remembers. Um, and and so I should also say that it's, you know, from my perspective, it's like, okay, so I see her short-term memory is, is really not functioning well, uh, but her long-term memory, like she remembers stuff from way back that amazes me and uh so it's um yeah for me it's been a process of discovery and then talking to the rest of my family and figuring out so how do we 
how do we interact with her? And then I did some reading, and um, you know, really the best thing to do is to uh, react as if it was the first time that she was asking the question, and just be patient, mm-hmm. and and really try to help her not get frustrated. And um, she did get on some medication that. I wish I knew what it was exactly, but it helped her sort of relax a little bit with it. And I think also, as time has passed, she's perhaps um, accepted her condition a little more. So she's not as frustrated as she was in the beginning. Okay. Okay. Well, it sounds like you've you've learned some good things in terms of being able to, you know, look at, you know, her comfort level in terms of going to the restaurant. Okay, it's the same one, but that's where she's comfortable at. Um, that's that's a great thing. And then also um, when you were talking about just how to react, you know, when she repeats herself, that's, uh, you know, for many of us that takes a long, long time to understand and to be able to, to go with the flow and make it about them. And so I give you kudos for that because that's not not an easy place um to be <laughs> all the time when we're when we're trying to work through work through life. Um are you comfortable at all talking about, you know, how you know how your family dealt with it as far as um your dad is, is she you know where is she living and you know how was all mm-hmm. of that handled? Sure. Um in the beginning, um, well, really before my dad um, passed away in uh, in 2010, my parents had um, made plans to move into an assisted living facility, and um, they had been checking out some different facilities, but they hadn't signed up yet. So that was in mm-hmm. the works. Then he passed away, and so um, she was, you know, considering what the options were, and then... Uh, because of um, some issues with her not remembering whether she had paid certain bills, my oldest brother um, became the executor of uh, their uh, trust, and is you know he helps her on a regular basis with that. And um, the question comes up, you know, every so often is like, how do you feel living at home? Do you think you know you might be wanting to look at? some facilities, and then she did tour some places, and, uh, of course, they have long waiting lists, a lot of them, Mm -hmm. Um, and so um, that is still in process. Um, We know there's going to be a time where she's not going to be able to function on her own. Um, She does have a live-in caretaker 24-7 through an agency, Um, and uh, so that's working right now. Um, it's a big house, uh, you know, uh, but it is, I, I think, more affordable at this point uh, to do that option than to uh, move into a facility at this point. Okay. Yeah, and that's wonderful. I think most people, you know, if they can keep them home, they they want to, um, you know. But <clears throat> but it's you know it's gotta it's gotta work for all parties, you know, and be safe and and so yeah. forth there. Um, now you had, um, you know, uh, written a, uh, a song called "Room to Room." Can you tell us a little bit about why you wrote this song and um, kind of how it relates to dementia? Sure. 
Um, so I have uh, a good friend uh, that I catch up with um, regularly, and uh, you know we just catch up on life events and and talk about what's going on. And uh, um, he's also a lyricist. Um, uh, Michael Cronin is his name, and um, he uh, and I had um, been writing uh, together on some of the songs on the album, and um, during this period where I told him, you know, what was going on with my mom and the um, the, the memory issues that she was having, um, I was uh, I was coming back from the South Bay and I was at the train station and he picked me up. Uh, in San Francisco, and uh, he shared this new lyric that he had written, which was based on some of our conversations, and um, he suggested uh, that now is probably not the right time, but when I was ready, consider, you know, writing uh, the music for it. And uh, at first I was just sort of like, what? This is, like, too personal. It just felt very... uh, I don't know, maybe too close to home. Um, but um, so I put it aside, um, and a number of weeks later, um, I realized there was a story here that was important to tell, and um, so I wrote the melody and the arrangement uh, for Room to Room, and then later recorded that and re- put it on my album. Wonderful. Well, why don't we go ahead and um, take a listen to Room to Room. Walking room to room Looking for something she can't find Making new memories isn't easy
what a beautiful song. It's um Thank you. How does that make you feel when you hear it now? After writing it and putting it together and Uh it still moves me a little bit. Um it's just uh an incredible story. My parents were together for 64 years. And so for my mom, you know, my dad not being there anymore. It's it's um I I just can't imagine exactly what she's going through, but you know, they were in that house for many, many years and um so that's one element of the song and then the other, you know, part of it is this repetition of making new memories isn't easy, which is, you know, used throughout the song. In fact, we uh, there was some uh, there was a review that was a, a bit critical about the repetition of the song, and I thought they didn't really get it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, it it was all about that, you know, because that's how it is for people who are, uh, you know, have this illness. And um, so anyway, I'm I'm kind of. Uh, going on a tangent here, but um, I uh, I'm really glad that uh, I was able to do this song, and and I do hope that uh, you know perhaps in sharing it that you know people find some comfort and um, and that it raises you know more awareness um, for Alzheimer's and dementia. Well, I think it's a beautiful song, and I and I thank you and all your collaborators on it. I mean the. The the melody, just the tone, everything is just so sweet. And it really does. Like you said, the repetition, I mean, that is what it's like many times. Uh, not for everybody because dementia is different in every case, but for, for many it is that repeating over and over and over um, that is dealt with. And it's got to be, you know, scary in that sense of loss and, you know, to have to be reassured all the time. And um, and so I, I thank you for your work and, and helping raise awareness. Um, and I think it's neat that, you know, how people are really, you know, who are who are affected by this disease are are taking it and doing something in in a genre where they're comfortable. In yours is music. Um, mine not so much. You know, <laughs> I could I could I couldn't do that. We did a a fun uh, video where I changed the lyrics to the 12 days of Christmas for the thanking the UK and stuff, but by, by no stretch, uh, anything serious, you know, just kind of all in fun and, and things. So, but uh, these songs are very important and, and music is just a language that, that knows no boundaries and it just crosses, um, the world. And so again, I, I thank you, um, and all your cohorts and, and putting the effort because I know that um, making music is, you know, for us it sounds simple and we all enjoy it, but it's a lot of work to pull together a song, let alone an album. And uh, and so can you tell people how they can uh, get your song and get your album? Sure. Or CD? Um, I'm, I'm aging myself by saying album. Uh. <laughs> Well, I, I call it album. It's a collection of songs. Um, yeah, there are 12 original songs that I wrote, um, and four of them uh, Michael wrote with me. Um, and uh, it's available in CD, uh, through CD Baby, and Amazon. And then uh, the MP3 download is also available through CD Baby, Amazon, and iTunes. 
Um, so, you know, whether you prefer to download or if you like to have the physical CD in your hand, uh, you can get it either way. And um, so you can search for me on, on those sites or just go to my website, um, markethridge.com. Okay. And do you want to spell that for them, too? Yes. M-A-R-K-E-T-H-E-R-E-D-G-E dot com. So it's like uh, Ether Edge. Okay. And, um, well, I like I said, I, I so appreciate your time today, and I hope that you and your family just have a, a blessed holiday season. And I would encourage people to to go to Mark's website because there you can listen to some of his other songs, too. You can go ahead and, and preview some of those uh, if you'd like. His music is absolutely gorgeous. Uh, you really, really have a nice way with your sound. And um, I really appreciate it myself. So thank you so much for your time today. Any any last thoughts that you want to share with our audience at all, Mark? Uh, well, I just want to say I appreciate what you're doing. And um, uh, I there was something that came up uh, in your conversation with Dr. Phyllis um, about how also you are not the illness. Mm-hmm. You just talked about that, and it was like, wow, that just sort of like blew my mind a little bit. Um, and even though I'm not a hands-on caretaker, um, I, that that's a message that I think a lot of people need to remember, that they need to recharge and, you know, take the time to take care of themselves um, as well as the people that they're taking care of. Yeah. And music's a beautiful way to, to anyways, for me, is a beautiful way to, you know, regenerate um, and just give myself that peace and calm and relaxing, or maybe it's just to pep me up. I mean, music does so many things, so it just depends on what each of us needs at any given time. It can be a, a great escape um, to be able to just fill our, fill our souls back up again. So wonderful. Well, great. Well, with that, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up this show. And again, I thank you so much for your time today and uh, for your music. It's absolutely beautiful. Thank you, Lori, and uh, happy holidays to you. You too. Bye now. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and uh, I just want to invite people to join us for Dementia Chats, uh, which will be on the 27th at 2 o'clock. We usually do that on Tuesday, but given the holiday, we've We've pushed that um, back a couple of days, so that will be Thursday, December 27th um, from 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. Central or 3 o'clock Eastern, um, 1 o'clock Mountain, and noon Pacific. And we would love to have you join those conversations uh, where we interview people who have dementia. I'm sure we'll be talking a lot about how the holiday went, um, what worked, what didn't work, and we would love your feedback as well. I want to thank um, Alzheimer's Disease International for all the wonderful work they're doing. And if you go to our website and go to the bottom of, of any page, you'll see their logo there. You can go ahead and click on that, and you can find an Alzheimer's Association anywhere in the world to be able to connect with. Until next time, please have a safe and blessed holiday. And keep in mind the three things that just make life a little bit easier when dealing with dementia. Keep in mind, are they safe, are they happy, and are they pain-free? 
And you can get your memory chip um, at www.alzheimerspeaks.com. Until next time, we will talk soon. Bye-bye. It's time to rethink, renew, and reimagine retirement. Hey, everybody. Jared Sebesta here, host of Retire Repurposed. Now, this podcast is about the non-financial parts of retirement, which many times can be even more challenging than the financial. We believe retirement is not the end, rather the beginning of what could be the most impactful, purposeful, and fulfilling season of a person's life. So don't retire. Become repurposed. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.